The message for today comes from 1 Corinthians 9 through 13. Oops, chapter 5, <laughs> 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immorality people, immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom, is it not those inside the church you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Please join me in a moment of prayer. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would, that you would still our minds. We pray that you would ease our anxieties. We pray that you would free us from the distractions of the world, the cares of this life, all of the tasks that await us back home or at work. And we pray that this time, at this moment, and at this place, we would focus purely upon you, upon your glory, the glory of your Son, and upon your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would take hold of our mind and our attention and that you would teach us by the power of your spirit. Help us to understand your word rightly, but above all, not just to intellectually understand it, but we pray that you would enable us to apply it so that in the end, we might be a church that brings you great glory and honor and praise. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, when I was in the army, yes, another army story. Um, I had a sergeant share a story with me, so this isn't something that personally happened to me, but uh, the story had al has always stuck with me. But I had a sergeant tell me that when he was a private, he once had his uh, platoon sergeant march the entire platoon deep into the woods one day. And as they're walking out there, they're asking, you know, where are we going, sergeant? I mean, what are, we, what are we doing? To which he replied, we're about to attend a funeral. You can imagine what some of those privates are thinking. Oh, great. <laughs> which one's he going to shoot and bury out in the woods? 
So they march out into the woods. They get to a clearing. And uh, sure enough, there are two homemade, obviously, headstones made out of cardboard, two pieces of cardboard stuck in the ground. And, uh, and as they were heading out there, he informed them that uh, actually he, they were uh, attending the funeral of, of, of two brothers, uh, both by the last name of Els. And the first was on the headstone, and we are going to lay to rest private somebody else and private someone else. And we're going to bury them today. And he, uh, he began to go into this whole eulogy, this lengthy eulogy about each of them and how they were each such great soldiers because they did everything all the time, no matter what it was. They were always there. They were always available. And if there was anything that had to be done, either private someone else or somebody else was able to do it. But alas, they are both dead because we've worked them to death. And so from now on, when something needs to be done, no one can ever think to themselves or say, surely someone else or somebody else will take care of it because they're dead, soldiers. There they are. We are all witnesses to their burial. From now on, you have to do it or I have to do it. But we can no longer rely on someone else or somebody else to take care of the things that need to be done. Within the church, when it comes to accountability, we tend to do the same, don't we? We see someone struggling with something, engaging in some sinful behavior or some sinful character flaw, and we think to ourselves, boy, I hope somebody else will take care of that, or I hope someone else will sit down and talk to that individual. I will pray for them, but surely someone else or somebody else will have a talk with that individual. Makes you wonder if we should have our own funeral out front in the courtyard, shouldn't we? One day we should gather and just bury someone else and somebody else and talk about how they were great members of our church, but now they're dead. So if there's something that needs to be done or someone that needs to be accountable, we cannot depend on someone else or somebody else to do it. Paul has made that clear to the church in Corinth. And we'll continue to make that clear to the church in Corinth. Right? He said that back in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You are to do this. Don't wait for somebody else to take care of this. Don't expect the apostles to come and take care of this. You need to deal with this. He'll say it again, very last sentence of this chapter, purge the evil person from among you. 
right? The subject of that sentence is implied. You purge, you purge the evil person from among you. In the end, what Paul will drive home in this passage is what he has been driving home in this passage all along, and that is that protecting the church from those who might damage the church is everyone's responsibility. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It's not someone else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. It is my responsibility to protect the church from those who might damage her. And thus, in this passage, Paul does three things in this final section, our fourth sermon in this series. He does three things. Number one, he's going to clarify something that he said in a previous letter. Specifically, he will clarify what he did not mean in a previous letter. Secondly, he's then going to clarify what he did mean. So first he'll say, this is what I did not mean. Then he's going to say, this is what I did mean. And then thirdly, he will explain to them why this must be done. Why is it important? And so with that, let's look at our text. As I said, Paul's first point is that he is going to clarify what he did not mean in his previous letter. If you look at verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So the first obvious thing that just needs to be noted is that clearly this is not the first letter he's written to the church in Corinth, right? He says, I wrote to you in my letter. Well, what letter, Paul? So there is a letter that no longer exists by the divine wisdom of God. Surely there was a lot of good teaching in it, right? This is the apostle Paul. There would have been value in it, but God saw in his divine providence that it was not to be preserved as the inerrant and authoritative word of God. Hence, not everything the apostles wrote was the authoritative word of God. Apparently, Paul thought, well, or God thought, well, Paul, that first letter was a great draft, but you need to write a second one. And this is the one that Paul, that God has preserved the second letter that Paul wrote, and then the third letter that Paul wrote. And so what we gather then is that he wrote this letter, gave them some instructions that they struggled with, disagreed with, and then they wrote back about it and some other things. And we know that because, again, there will be references that will come up from time to time. You see that in chapter 7, for example, verse 1 where Paul will write, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he'll go on to talk about various things regarding the principles of marriage. So we can piece this together, and the timeline we understand is that Paul wrote a letter to them, giving them instructions. They had difficulty with some of it. Some of it they didn't understand. Some of it they disagreed with. 
it raised other questions in their mind. So they write back and they say, oh, we got some other questions. But one of the things that they apparently misunderstood is what Paul is referring to here in verses 9 and 10. But first of all, let's understand that when Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Those two words, sexually immoral, is one Greek word. It is the word pornos. You've heard me refer to that word before. It'll come up again as we work our way through this letter that was apparently a significant problem in the church in Corinth, understandably because of the city in which they were located. Uh, the city of Corinth was a extremely... Um, debased kind of city with all kinds of rampant uh, immorality. And so they are, uh, you know, the, the, the product of their environment. They are attempting to change, obviously, under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. But these two, Greek, these two words, sexually immoral, is the one Greek word, pornos, and it literally means physical sexual contact. Physical sexual contact. It is where we get our English word pornography or pornographic. But the Greek word means physical sexual contact. It is the same word that Christ uses in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, with reference to uh, the grounds for divorce that uh, Jesus allows for there. And so Paul had written to them previously not to associate with the sexually immoral or the greedy, the swindlers, or idolaters, and they took him to mean anybody in the world that practices these things. You know, okay, so Paul is saying that if there is anybody out there who is engaged in this kind of activity, we're just supposed to cut ourselves off from them entirely. Not only did they misunderstand Paul, Right, which he's going to explain in a minute. That's not what he meant. But even if that is what he meant, apparently they just outright disagreed with the apostle Paul who was given the authority of God to speak on his behalf. Because not only did they not do that, but they weren't even willing to do that with people that were inside the church. So they received his letter, and they thought to themselves, that's crazy. We're not going to cut ourselves off from people that engage in sexual immorality or idolatry or, or are swindlers or whatever else. I mean, you know, my neighbor across the street, he's an unbeliever. I like him. He's a great guy. I can't expect him to live any differently. We're not even going to deal with that with people in the church. So we're just going to ignore what Paul has to say all together. Now, we, we read that, and you hear me say that in, you know, 21st century America, and we think, wow, that is amazing when you really think of it that way. But how often do we do the same? How often do we take Christians to the Word of God and say, this is what the Bible says about how you are to live, only to be met with the response of, well, I just don't agree with that. Did I forget to mention this is God's word? Well, I don't like that, so I don't think I'm going to follow that one. And we have this tendency to want to pick and choose, simply disregarding the authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of God. 
You see, this is the problem that the church in Corinth is having. Their basic problem is that they simply will not follow what God has said. That's why Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, that they would learn from his example and the example of Paulos not to go beyond what is written. Read the Bible and follow it. Now, I know that's not always easy, right? We struggle with sin. I get that. So maybe we can qualify that by saying, read the Bible and strive to live by it. At least put forth the effort. Because for some of us, we don't even put forth the effort. I just don't like that verse. And I'm going to trust in God's grace on this one. This is the problem the church in Corinth is having. Paul the apostle writes to them, and they simply disregard what he has to say. Thus, Paul clarifies, he wants to clarify, that he did not mean from people outside the church. He did not mean from the unbelieving world. Otherwise, believers would have to leave the world, right? He says, look, that's not what I meant. You live in the world. You live among unbelievers. You can't possibly separate yourself from them because we live and share the same planet. There's an important lesson, I think, that is being made here, and that is that Christians are not to cut themselves off from interacting with the world. God doesn't want us to do that. Now, certainly, we need to be careful not to allow ourselves to be influenced by the world, but we are not to cut ourselves off from the world. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, when he said this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If salt loses its effectiveness, which means it's lost its taste, right? If salt doesn't taste salty anymore, then you would know this has lost its effectiveness. It's not not good anymore. But he doesn't just mean taste, because we have to understand the context in which Jesus lived. When we think of salt... And we think of what is salt useful for? Would you want to live in a world without salt? Most of us would think, no. Why? Because our food would be pretty bland, right? And that's, that's what we use salt for, by and large. Or water softeners, I suppose. There might be other things. But for most people, it's food. But in the ancient world, yes, they used it to season their food, But primarily, the important thing about salt in the first century world was preserving meat. Beef, pork, fish, they could pack it in crates filled with salt, and it would last for months. In a world without refrigeration, that is important. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, I do believe he means two things, and I think the disciples would have understood that as well, is that believers are the preserving agent of this world. Christians are the only reason the world is not worse than it is. 
because we are the ones who keep irritating everybody about what is morally right. And although they get annoyed with us today, that's always been the case. Anti-slavery Christians were despised by many Americans, both North and South. But they continued to beat the drum saying that slavery is wrong. It is unbiblical and must be ended. During the 1960s, they were again looked down upon and reviled for marching alongside men like Martin Luther King Jr. for civil rights in the Deep South. But they knew it was wrong. Today, Christians continue to be reviled because we stand up against abortion and we stand up against homosexuality and we stand up against transgenderism, or at least we should. Professing Christians should. But even beyond that, you look at Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. By default, that means we must interact with the world. So this whole idea of monasteries or Christian communes where we just get so tired with dealing with the world, we're just going to buy 100 acres of land and we're going to live together, we're going to make our own soap and we're going to make our own candles, we're going to grow our own food. None of us will have social security numbers, as great as that may sound. It is simply unbiblical because God commands us to engage the world to be the salt and the light of the world. And so Paul clarifies, look, I didn't mean at all that you got to go outside of the world. That's crazy. But certainly we must be careful not to expose ourselves to the influence of the world, right? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? Only a foolish believer will think that all of my closest friends can be unbelievers and I can hang around with all of my coworkers on Friday night and Saturday night and spend most of my time with them and I will be unaffected by their behavior. Paul says, don't be deceived. You spend too much time with the unbelieving world and it won't be long before you are acting like the unbelieving world. But nonetheless, we are not to cut ourselves off from them. Thus he explains, well, what did he mean then? So verses 9 and 10, this is what he did not mean. Then in verses 11 and 12, he'll begin to explain what he did mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So that's the first criteria. That's the first qualification. I'm specifically, Paul says, I'm specifically talking about those who profess to be believers, not the unbelieving world. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so the second criteria is that they are unrepentantly engaging in these 
sinned. Again, Paul isn't saying if any believer commits one of these sins one time, that's it, cut them off, right? That would obviously contradict many of the other things that Paul talked about, uh, namely 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, love bears no record of wrong, right? Or the reading of the law that we just read this morning from Ephesians, forgiving one another in love, right? There has to be forgiveness. So Paul is talking about those who profess the name of Christ and are actively engaging in these sinful behaviors and are not willing to repent. They see no problems with how they are living or how they are behaving. But before we go on, I want to first deal with the last phrase of uh, verse 12. Not even to eat with such a one. So whatever Paul means in verse 11 and 12, he then says that you are not even to eat with that kind of a person. What does he mean by that? Some have tried to argue that Paul is referencing the Lord's Supper, that you are to excommunicate that person from the Lord's Supper. You're not to engage in that meal with them. The problem, however, with that argument, I think, because some people just think it seems too harsh, Like, just disassociate yourself completely from them. Don't even eat with them. They invite you to lunch. Can't do it. We're not sitting down at the same table together. That seems awful harsh, Paul. So surely he's talking about the Lord's Supper. The problem is that the Lord's Supper is nowhere in the context of chapter 5. It's nowhere in the context of the first five chapters of the book. He doesn't mention it. He's not even going to mention the Lord's Supper for several more chapters. So it just seems out of place to read the Lord's Supper into what Paul is saying. Contextually, I don't think it fits. Rather, I think what Paul has in mind is actually eating with people, and that is because in the first century world, to sit at a meal and and share a meal with someone was a way in condoning their behavior. It was viewed as condoning their behavior, or at least to some extent being okay with it. Hence the reason Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians chapter 2 for not wanting to eat with the Gentiles when the Jews come around. He'll do it when there's no Jews around, but as soon as the Jews from Jerusalem come down to visit, oh, Peter separates himself from the Gentiles, I'm not going to eat with you. Well, Peter, is it okay or is it not okay? It's one or the other, right? When you eat with them, you're saying, I'm okay with you Gentiles, but then when you separate yourself from them, you're sending a different kind of message. It's also the same reason the Pharisees condemned Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? Tax collectors. Who does that? Jesus does that. Because they're humans. They're people in need of a Savior. They struggled with that. The Pharisees would never do that. No self-respecting Jew would do that to eat with a tax collector. Thus, Paul is saying... I believe that when these kinds of people are put outside the church for unrepentance, you are to completely disassociate yourself with them, according to Paul. You're to delete them from your contact list. We're done, according to Paul. And you may think, well, that seems awful harsh. 
But let me remind you, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote this. So these are the words of God. So more accurate to say, this is what God says. But why? Why? Why these sins? And is it only these sins? Or is it all sins for which someone might be excommunicated? Is this just what we do when we get to the point of excommunication? Is that what it looks like? Put them outside the church physically. You are not allowed to come back. We are not going to eat with you ever until you repent. It helps to know that this is not an arbitrary list from Paul. Paul is not just uh, pulling a list out of, the, out of a hat. In fact, Paul is getting this list from the Old Testament. Recall that in the Old Testament, not all sins were dealt with in the same way, right? If you're familiar with your Old Testament. In other words, there were some sins in the Old Testament for which a particular sacrifice was required. You see that all over the Old Testament. Certain sins, God said you had to bring a dove or you had to bring a lamb or you had to bring a goat and it had to be offered a certain way at the temple. There were other sins in which a monetary fee was required. No sacrifice, you had to pay a fee. Commit this sin, you pay a certain amount of money to the judge. That's how that was to be dealt with. Other sins, the punishment was beating before the judge. If the person is found guilty, you bring them before the judge and you beat them with 40 lashes or whatever the case may be. Still, there are other sins in which a person was banished from the camp for a certain amount of days, 7 to 14 days. Usually, that was for becoming ceremonially unclean somehow, touching a dead body or whatever the case may be, banished from the camp for a certain amount of time, then you can come back in. But then there were some sins in the Old Testament for which death was the penalty without exception. God says, you commit this sin, you kill this person. There is no exception. It's interesting that these are the sins that Paul has in mind when he gives us this list. For example, regarding idolatry in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 to 7, God is very specific that if any Israelite engages in idolatry, in false worship, he goes outside and he worships at some high place or worships at, the, at, an, at an altar of Baal or an Asherah pole, that person was to be stoned and cut off from the people. Paul lists idolaters. I think he has the same sin in mind. Let's not try to spiritualize that. He has the same sin in mind. They are in Corinth. Paul is saying, look, if there's any professing believer who for whatever reason is still going out and still worshiping at the temple of Diana, is still worshiping at the temple of Zeus, is still praying to all of these pagan gods, but yet at the same time professing to have faith in Christ alone, Paul says, cut that person off. Cut that person off. Regarding revilers, Paul has in mind, I believe, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 19. Let me read that to you. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Listen to this. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, 
then both parties to the dispute shall be brought to the Lord, brought before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So if you falsely accuse your brother of engaging in idolatry, and then it's found out that this is not true, guess what's going to happen to the false accuser? You're going to be put to death. Why? Listen to the next statement. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's the same language that Paul uses, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. Same word. You shall purge the evil from your midst. You see the same requirement regarding sexual immorality? Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 20, deals with fornicators, adulterers, and rapists. And then if you look at Numbers chapter 18, Numbers chapter 18 deals with homosexuality and bestiality. And in those two chapters regarding sexual immorality, those individuals are to be put to death. God despises sexual sins. And they are to be put to death. You also see that regarding the drunkards. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 20. This is a passage dealing with the rebellious son. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of this city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. It's probably the reason why he's rebellious and won't listen. He's drunk all the time. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Listen, you shall purge the evil from your midst. You see the same with the greedy and the swindlers. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among your midst. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, when God deals with sexual immoral sins, He says it three times in verse 21, you shall purge the evil from your midst. Verse 22, you shall purge the evil from your midst. Verse 24, you shall purge the evil from your midst. Paul, this list in Paul's mind is all derived from the law. Now, although that last one does have to do with uh, the stealing of people, and selling them into slavery, the point is that Paul, when he thinks of these sins, he thinks of theft, stealing a person. It's theft. When you steal from a person, you're violating that individual. But ultimately, what Paul is wanting to drive home is that under Old Testament law, people who committed these sins were cut off from God's people by being put to death. However, in the Old Testament, God's people were a part of a political nation. 
And these were the laws that governed that nation, right? So we don't have the authority to do that in the church. We live in the United States under United States constitutional law and federal law. So Paul's point is that in the New Testament, God's people are a part of the church. And Paul sees that for those who commit these sins, this is how they are to be cut off from the covenant community. Do you see the point? Paul still believes that these people, the people of God, if they commit these sins, they are to be cut off from the covenant community. In the Old Testament, that was death. In the New Testament, it is completely disassociating from them. So just as in the Old Testament, not every sin was dealt with in the same way, so also in the New Testament, not every sin is dealt with in the same way. Referring back to Matthew chapter 18, which I know we've looked at quite a bit in this series, some sins only require step one and nothing more, a simple chatting with the person. Even regardless of how they respond, some sins are so minor, sins nonetheless, but so minor that even if they say, you know, I'm not sure I agree with you with that. Well, okay, I will pray for you then. But there's no need to take it to the next level. But some sins are a little more serious, and you need to bring two or three other people. Some sins are so serious, they need to be brought to the church. Other sins are so serious that if the person won't repent, they need to be excommunicated on the first level. And what is that? Removing them from church membership, but not disassociating with them. Even Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, you are to treat them like Gentiles and tax collectors, right? But Jesus ate with tax collectors, didn't he? So Jesus didn't completely cut himself off from the tax collectors. But now Paul is saying that with regards to these sins, if a person refuses to repent and listen to the church, with regards to these sinful behavior, if they are excommunicated for these sins, Paul says, you don't even eat with them. You disassociate themselves, yourself from them completely. But why these sins? Well, the simple answer is because these are the sins in the Old Testament that God said that people are to be put to death for. We can sit and philosophize, philosophize and rationalize, rationalize all we want over how these sins, you know, well, maybe God listed these because they have the potential to, you know, affect other people, and we can get into all kinds of theories about why God had these sins in mind. But the bottom line is simply this, because God said so. Because God told the people of Israel, you cut off these people for these sins. And Paul is getting this list from the Old Testament and saying if people are excommunicated for these sins, they are to be cut off. Our job, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 6, is simply to follow Scripture and to obey what God has commanded. He then offers an explanation as to why it must be this way in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside. In other words, Paul's point is that it's not our job to judge people in the world. That's God's job. Yes, we're to hold them accountable. Yes, we're to point them to Christ. Yes, we are to be the salt of the earth, but it is not our job to render judgment upon those outside the church. It is our job to render judgment upon those inside the church and not those inside these four walls, but those who are truly believers or profess to be believers within the church. Hence, again, the importance of church membership. Because if you're going to put someone outside the church, we first have to know who's inside the church. And the only way to do that is through a process we call church membership. But it is our job, it is our responsibility to judge, yes, to judge those inside the church. This is not the job of someone else or of somebody else. This is your job and this is my job to hold one another accountable. Because in the end, here's the reason Paul ends with this. Purge the evil person from among you. Because that is what God commands, both in the Old Testament and in the New. But what needs to be understood in all of this is that all of this is being driven by love. Love for God and a desire to please Him as a church Love for the church and a desire to protect her and to keep her safe. And love for each other and a desire to do what is best for one another. Love ultimately is what drives everything that Paul says in this letter, which he will make emphatically clear as this letter culminates with chapter 13. It's all about love. The entire book is about love and what love within the church should look like and function like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words that we know are trustworthy and infallible as they were penned by your apostle Paul to whom you gave the authority to write and to speak on your behalf. We pray, Lord God, that we would take these words to heart, that we would take them seriously, that we would implement them into our lives, and that we, each of us, in this room, in this church, every professing believer, would see it as our responsibility to hold one another accountable, and that we would do this lovingly, gently, always pointing one another to Christ. In Christ's name, amen.